This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. This BFM budget 2024 special is brought to you by Marsing. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And now when it comes to women's sexual and reproductive health, there are pressing needs that have not received enough resources or attention. Funding sexual and reproductive health services is really an investment that saves the lives of women and children while also strengthening families and communities. So we'll be shining a spotlight on what healthcare and gender rights experts also want to see in Budget 2024 to improve women's health, um, particularly when it comes to sexual and reproductive Productive health from the perspectives of both what we need to do to provide um, healthcare services and social support to women and young girls as well. To do that, I'm joined today by consultant obstetrician and gynecologist and fertility specialist Dr. Humei Lin, as well as primary care reproductive health specialist Dr. Subhatra Jaya Raj. Dr. Subha is also the president of the Reproductive Rights Advocacy Alliance Malaysia. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me here, Suan. It's indeed Thanks. a great honour. Thanks, Suhanne. Um, Thanks for having us. Now, for those of you listening, if you have any specific wish list you want to see on women's sexual and reproductive health as well, um, you can share that with us. Call us at 7733-2900. You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Now, I'm going to start with a broad-ish question. Um, I'll start with you first, Dr. Hu. You know, how would you define what women's sexual and reproductive health is? What does it actually encompass? I think it encompasses uh, how we see ourselves um, and also how we can plan when to have babies, how to have babies, if we want babies. And of course, it also encompasses our ability to access the services that enables us to have control over our reproductive and sexual rights. So I think yeah, that's about it. So it encompasses not only women, but I think men and those that identify as the opposite and, and all that. Mm. What what do you see sexual and reproductive health right, uh, rights as, Dr. Suba? Um, um, sexual and reproductive health and rights, or RHR, um, is actually a complete physical, mental and social well-being of anything related to our sexuality and our reproductive system. Um, frequently, we only kind of focus on reproductive rights, which is what Dr. Hu probably alluded to. But sexual reproductive health, uh, to me, is not only when we talk about pregnancy or having children, uh, but it's also from what we say, womb to tomb. Uh, we talk about disorders of sexual development, for example, from when you're small to puberty, uh, to a reproductive age, to menopause, and then talking about gynecological cancers in our in our advanced age. So SRH actually like is relevant for everybody in every stage of life. Hmm. Dr. Suba, looking at this issue, I guess, more conceptually, right? We've, when you say womb to tomb, we've done very well um, historically when it comes to maternal health care. I mean, we pride ourselves on, on how much we've improved when it comes to those indicators. Um, mother's health has improved dramatically over the decades. How is looking at, at this issue through the lens of sexual and reproductive health different from just looking at maternal health? Yeah, Malaysia did really well with our maternal and child health and, um, for example, uh, reducing our maternal mortality ratios um, from the 80s, 90s. But in over the past decades, actually, our MMR and, for example, our contraceptive prevalence rate, our CPR, has actually stagnated. And these result from the gaps in sexual and reproductive health, if you ask me. So we, we, we really focused a lot on MCH, which is maternal and child health. And that 
um, didn't have any focus to the people who were not in the period that you were pregnant or the short postpartum period after. And, and this is very, you know, it's, 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 it was very um, creating a lot of gaps because women constitute half the population, uh, but yet the needs of most of them or most of us are when we are not pregnant are neglected. And um, especially if uh, you're not forming this kind of traditional um, partnerships where you are seen to be sexually active. Um, for example, when you're only in the married category, um, nobody cares about that in data. Um, and in extension of that, nobody cares about that in policy and the budgets that we attribute policy to. Mm. Dr. Hu, from what you see, from patients that you see in the clinic, right, what are the, the, the health issues with sexual and reproductive health that you know aren't addressed enough? Um, I think uh, Dr. Suba is perfectly right. Uh, we, if you don't fall into the category of the married, the I've gotten pregnant in my first kid, now I don't want my second kid, then it is actually quite difficult to access the actually quite good structure that the government provides for our women. So, for example, if you are a teenager who wants to be safe and yet want to explore your sexuality, it's really frowned upon. And I think that um, because of the, the biases that, that we do encounter in society, then these groups are marginalised, let alone if you're of the same-sex couple or if you're LGBTQ, then it becomes really tough. Um, even if you are a single mum, it's still tough to access things like contraception because it has a very negative connotation if you take these sort of things outside of marriage, let alone if you're worried about STIs, sexually transmitted infections. So I think access to the good structure that we already have, which is provided by the Malaysian government, is actually hampered by lack of education and maybe lack of awareness. And I think a lot of things need to be done to, to address preventative health issues as uh, instead of the curative ones. Mm. Um, Dr. Suba, through um, RAAM, you know, what kind of measures, I guess, or, or have you uh, taken to sort of address these gaps that these specific vulnerable communities face, right? Those that Dr. Hu and you yourself mentioned as well. Yeah, when you talk about vulnerable communities, we talk about um, women and girls who are marginalised. Uh, that includes people from the lower socioeconomic groups, those from rural and remote areas, um, refugee communities, migrant communities, and undocumented, and also unmarried women and girls, um, including uh, adolescent women and girls. So they form the like big, huge uh, population of marginalized women that um, have a lot of barriers in accessing health services, particularly sexual and reproductive health services. Um, when you talk about a marginalization, it's usually much Analyzed by the system mm. and like from the system that's the things that we try to improve uh, via our advocacy um, in RAM the Reproductive Rights Advocacy Alliance with other women's rights groups and for example with um, we we are also part of the coalition of the gender budget group, which uh, talks about um, gender responsive budgeting. Um, so in line in in um, in in. Uh, in the upcoming budget, how do we look at how policies and advocate for budget impacts that um, are specific and um, 
and uh, looking into gender responsiveness uh, because different genders have different situations, roles, contributions, and different needs. So if you don't um, advocate for the proper policy planning to address systemic barriers and you do um, advocate for uh, proper budgeting and policies, um, then then they, then you continue perpetuating the gap. So VIRM and lots of the women's rights groups, we try to advocate in strengthening health policy policies, and specifically uh, to, to improve quality access to sexual reproductive health, uh, for example, to improve um, contraception and safe abortion services. Mm. Um, Dr. Suba, we assume that when it comes to funding for sexual and reproductive health, those would usually come under you know, obstetrics and gynecology or maybe even the family health department when it comes to public health issues. Do we know if any funding is actually usually specifically earmarked for these kinds of services? Um, as um, we have looked at the previous budgets, and yes, um, majority of funding to women's health have come via the Ministry of Health and the LPPKN, which is mm. um, under the uh, Women's Ministry. Uh, but in the last budget, um, the the Prime Minister um, alluded to a lot of um, new programs in sexual and reproductive health. Unfortunately, what is lacking is like follow up and data on um, on what was um, what was done and information on how that was taken forward after the budget announcement. For example, um, we we had last year uh, the government pledged to provide ten million ringgit for hygiene kits, mm -hmm. um, um, and we don't know. And sanitary pads are a good first step in menstrual hygiene practice improvement, uh, but we also need like further improvement on sexual and reproductive health information and access. Um, last year as well, um, I think the Prime Minister spoke about uh, budget allocation for cervical screening, which is really welcomed, uh, but we have a long way to go and we only will be able to see um, once we scrutinize the budget for 2024. Mm. Dr. Hu, looking at past budgets, do you think enough has been allocated for funding sexual and reproductive health services? Oh, I think the answer has to be a big fat no. <laughs> I think a lot of the budget has been towards more curative and we are, and it's towards saving lives mm. and saving the masses. Um, unfortunately, not enough has been done for things like the HPV vaccination, which is against um, uh, cervical cancer. And I think over the pandemic, that has really been left behind. Mm, because we've heard of girls missing out on HPV vaccination. Actually, I think we've, we've missed out quite a big cohort now mm. and we would be really scrambling to um, catch up. So uh, there has not been any clear, concrete, um, uh, uh, there hasn't been any clear things that's come out to say that, okay, this is coming again. We've heard about ad hoc schools that say suddenly, oh yeah, my daughter got vaccinated in school, but then they are so there, there's a big chunk that's missing. So we are hoping that the HPV vaccination program will still go off. And the other second exciting thing is actually HPV screening for cervical cancer rather than um, the liquid-based cytology or the conventional pap smear that mm -hmm. women go through. Um, I know all the clinical Asiatans have a KPI as to how many women they screen, but unfortunately, I think they are screening the same um, cohort of women over and over again, and the women who miss out, they miss out. So a lot still need to be done um, in terms of education, educating the public and maybe as well as educating the healthcare professionals 
to be more progressive in your approach um, to preventative measures. Mm, all right, we'll go for a quick break now. Um, on the show with me today are Dr. Hu Mei Lin, consultant, obstetrician, gynecologist, and fertility specialist, as well as Dr. Subhatra Jayaraj, primary care reproductive health specialist and president of the Reproductive Rights Advocacy Alliance Malaysia. We are discussing the needs in women's sexual and reproductive health ahead of Budget 2024. So we'll be right back after a few messages on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Stay tuned to BFM's Budget 2024 special, brought to you by Ma Sing. This BFM Budget 2024 special is brought to you by Ma Sing. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And joining me on the show today are consultant obstetrician and gynecologist and fertility specialist, Dr. Hume Lin, as well as primary care reproductive health specialist, Dr. Subhatra Jayaraj. We are talking about what we'd like to see for women's sexual and reproductive health ahead of the tabling of Budget 2024 on October 14th. Um, this is, even though we're zooming into women's sexual and reproductive health, there's still so much, um, so so many needs that need to be fulfilled areas that we've missed out over the years because um, a lot of the focus has been um, on maternal and child health, which is important. And we've done, you know, we've, we've made great strides in that, but it also means that there are other areas that have been left behind. Now, I'm going to kickstart the second part with a very short message we've had from a peer support group. Um, and this is from Sarita Morgan from My Endosis. She runs, um, and, and that's a peer support group for endometriosis patients. And here's what she hopes to see from Budget 2024. Our wish list for Budget 2024 is as follows. Number one, menstrual education should be taught in schools to educate young girls on the difference between normal period pain and not normal period pain. The landscape of our society is different now where girls as young as 10 years old are getting their periods. At present, girls in schools are only taught menstrual hygiene and reproduction. Our wish list number two is it takes six to eight years to be diagnosed with endometriosis simply because this health condition is connected to period pain. Now, this delay is unacceptable. Our fertility rate is the lowest in 12 years because women with reproductive health issues only see their gynecologist when facing fertility issues, which can be too late. Now, allocation should be given to create awareness programs to reduce the diagnostic delay. And we should not be ashamed to speak about menstrual health and period pain. Our wish list number three is income tax exemption on surgery and medication should be given to women with reproductive health issues, especially endometriosis. Now, unmarried women or women who cannot afford insurance with high premiums face difficulty in funding their health issues. Now, the strange thing is up to now, endometriosis is not listed in the database of the Ministry of Finance, but it's listed in the Ministry of Health's portal. Finally, our last wish list is menstrual leave should be given to women who face chronic period pain and endometriosis. Now, I know this is a controversial topic and it should be given to women with medical letter only from specialists and gynecologists. Now, this will not disrupt the country's economy because women with endometriosis and chronic period pain will continue to work and not stop working due to the lack of support from employers. Now, I hope the Ministry of Finance would be able to work with the Ministry of Women and NGOs such as ours to help women, especially women with reproductive health issues. 
So that was a bit from um, Sarita Mogan from My Endosis. I'm going to use that to segue uh, to talk to you first, Dr. Hu, about these reproductive health conditions, right? Things like um, PCOS, polycystic um, ovarian syndrome, um, endometriosis, fibroids, um, even uh, hormone-related issues like menopause. What, how can we better address these issues? What sort of policies would you like to see? Because these are traditionally underdiagnosed um, women's health conditions. Yes, um, I think uh, what, first and foremost, again, education. I, I can't stress it enough. I always think that if you make the public aware that these are issues that are faced by women, because like, for example, menopause. Mm. Oh, yeah, you know, menopause, everyone goes through it. I went through it. What's, what's your problem? And things like um, uh, painful periods. Everyone should, should have period. You should expect period pain. What, why, what makes your period pain mm. so much different to others? So I think if you start educating people, then people will stand up and take attention and be like, oh, hang on, this affects about the 50% of our population um, and we should take up and take notice. So things like the first thing that uh, Sarita alluded to, which is uh, tax relief or tax exemption mm. um, from these treatments, which are really good and can return a woman to normality, but they are out of reach because of price. Okay, with the weakening of the ringgit, it is a real concern. What kind of treatments are we talking about, Dr. Hu? Uh, we're talking about, okay, for example, endometriosis. There's a very, very good uh, hormonal treatment out now, which is oral, which is great because it's a tablet. Mm. But it costs around 160 to 170 ringgit a month, which to some of us is maybe not that much, right? But to like people who are struggling day to day, it's a lot. Mm. And yes, there is allocation and there are government hospitals giving out these drugs. But, you know, the budget is can only stretch so far and they maybe can help eight out of the 800 women who present with that problem. Okay, so if you get tax relief, so if you're an income taxpayer, you pay tax, but you get tax relief from, from say, these medications, then great. Fertility is another issue that mm. we could touch on. So we take fertility for granted. We're like, you know... Of, most of our lives, we are obsessed with, oh my God, I don't want to get pregnant. Then we do, you, do, you do want to go and get pregnant. Suddenly you can't. It's very devastating because everybody thinks that when you stop using that condom, the next month I'm going to be pregnant. So when that does not happen, it's very, very devastating and it can actually mean the end of a marriage for a lot of people or the end of a relationship. So fertility drugs are incredibly expensive. Fertility treatment is very expensive and the sad thing now is that because of how expensive it is, people are leaving it as a last resort. So when it's a last resort, means that you're not going to be successful if you attempt uh, fertility treatments too late um, mm. because of nature. The other thing that we can touch briefly on is maybe um, tax relief, also about fertility, but about preserving fertility for our young cancer patients. Mm. Now, we are getting very, very good at treating uh, children with cancer, not so good about preserving how normal their life is going to be at, in the future. Because often these treatments for cancers destroys the ovaries, destroys the testes, and then we can no longer then replace them because while in the Muslim population, things like donation of eggs and sperm is, is it's not allowed, mm. all right? But for maybe non-Muslims, we can still access these sort of um, pro uh, 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 treatments. So I think a little bit more thinking to go into 
uh, how the budget is. I, I'm not an expert on policy and, mm. and things like that. I think Dr. Subal is probably better than that <laughs> at me. But what I see are day-to-day people who are struggling with these sort of diseases. And I think a little bit of thought will go a long way. Um, tax exemption is, is a good start uh, because these are the people who are already um, contributing to the country through their taxes and to get some relief back will be very welcomed. I think last year, the budget allocated for preventative services about a thousand ringgit cap, okay, where you can ta- claim back from your tax. And we would like to see, I would personally like to see an increase in that. So to, so that people will then go get their vaccinations, their medical screening, their gynecological screenings. I, I think that would be a great start. Mm. I mean, just to add in a bit of a personal experience, I wasn't part of the cohort who got the HPV vaccination yeah. in school and I had to pay that out of pocket. And three doses of HPV vaccination takes you up to 1,500 ringgit. And that's a lot of money for most people, e- even though a HPV vaccination is life-saving. Yeah, so so to plug that, actually you can, you can if you pay taxes... You can claim a thousand ringgit of that back. So if you're creative with your, <laughs> maybe you can spread it out against two fiscal years and then you can claim it back that way. Mm. Yeah. Um, and speaking, but speaking a bit more on fertility treatment, um, Dr. Hu, you know, some might say, well, fertility tr- treatment is extremely expensive. How do we justify things like tax exemptions or subsidies when it comes to it? I think uh, the government has done great things already by making some of it um, tax deductible. Mm. And also you can withdraw from your EPF yep. for, for fertility treatments now. But that amount of money hardly, I mean, you still have to top up. That's not going to be enough for one cycle of IVF. And some women need more than one cycle to achieve their dream of having a child or completing their family. Mm. So, um, I don't know, maybe making the drugs a little bit cheaper, Mm. reducing the import tax of drugs, because most of these drugs come from overseas. Research. Mm. I think if we encourage local research and and we are able to do some homegrown things, I think that would be great uh, strides um, into helping women and men and Malaysians to fulfil their dreams of having a family. Mm. Um, looking on the other side of, of this, what we're talking about family planning, I mean, I want to talk about adolescents for a bit. Dr. Suba, you know, according to the latest National Health and Morbidity Survey 2022, which focuses on adolescent health, it reported that 75% of teenagers in Malaysia um, said that they had sex recently, but 88% are not using contraceptives. What do you what do you think we need to also prioritise when it comes to adolescent sexual health, um, especially access to information about their bodies and sexual health, access to services, care and counselling? I know you alluded to a bit uh, to that a bit earlier. Could you elaborate more? Yeah, the gender budget group in our policy brief, we actually recommend introducing an allocation about five to ten million for sexual and reproductive health education training. Um, these. Um, like CSE is comprehensive sexuality education and sex education is still abstinence-based very much in Malaysia, although um, the Ministry of Women and the Ministry of Education and, and the Ministry of Health um, recognize the importance of comprehensive sexuality education. Um, the budget 2022 talked about introducing uh, CSE, but mm. there's, there was no allocation of amount. Um, so we would like a, a little bit more clarity on what is um, going to be uh, implemented. 
Um, we recommend also, like, for example, to provide comprehensive sexuality education to Malaysians, regardless of age, because you'll be surprised of how many women in their 30s and 40s who've had three or four children don't know basic um, mm. uh, SRH information. Uh, we recommend in the gender budget group, like, to provide subsidies for online sexual reproductive health counseling services. A lot of our good work and the good quality outreach that have been, have been continuously being done in Malaysia are being done by NGOs and it's um, very, very underfunded and the quality outreach is really very, very good. Um, so I think the government should actually look on ways on how to strengthen these programs and to support it in a systematic manner so that we can expand not only for places like in the Klang Valley, uh, but to outside the Klang Valley where, you know, the need is very much there. Um, we also recommend, like, for example, to allocate 10 million for training stakeholders. And these include in LPPKN, in um, the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Education, to create uh, spaces to understand safe sexual practices and safe spaces for teenage pregnancies and victims of sexual violence that are adolescents. And these like are not only like, you know, should be in the ministry, you know, um, I think we have come a long way in building civil society and we need to really incorporate people from the ground up. So teachers, healthcare providers, local leaders, such as your Ketua Kampung, religious leaders, and also taking into account differently able groups because uh, frequently um, women with disabilities are sidelined in the conversations of sexual and reproductive health. Um, so please um, reach out to um, those who really do the work. And I would hope that um, in the budget that is upcoming, that there is enough resources uh, that is dedicated to this. Mm. But Dr. Suba, what about the stigma and the taboo? Because, you know, as much as we might be open to talking about this, a lot of our society uh, is not, right? How do we even tackle that in the first place? So stigma definitely is a huge problem in sexual and reproductive health. Um, but it's something that, you know, I think... Uh, the real problem who or people who are stigmatized are the older generation. Um, in RAM, we do a lot of work with young people and you'd be surprised on how open young people are to talking about sexuality and reproductive health, um, how young um, uh, people start talking about sexuality. Uh, I am, comprehensive sexuality education should be age appropriate. Mm. And if you ask me, it should start when, um, you know, when the child is at least one or two. And there are so many different ways that we can do things. Uh, so stigma is, is inherent, but it is, we can tackle it. Um, RAM, for example, we run um, currently ongoing um, in conjunction with the International Day of Safe Abortion. We run, we're running this with FYKL, uh, hashtag Gugorkan Stigma, mm -hmm. uh, because stigma in safe abortion is so high in, the, in, in this country that it prevents access to services that are legal and available. Um, so it's an, it's a, it's a, it needs to be a holistic process that includes everybody um, from the grassroots uh, to policymakers uh, to everybody in the ministry level as well. Mm. Dr. Hu, you would see patients, you would see people who already think something is wrong and come to see you, right? What kind of stigma do you see compared to what Dr. Suba might see? I think um, from what I gather from the patients that I see is that suddenly they will, in the middle of our consultation, they would, they would suddenly say, oh my God, you know, I think you're the only person who has actually sat down and listened to me. So I think we still need to train our healthcare professionals to listen. Mm. 
sometimes people come and often there is a hidden agenda. Mm. So I... Yeah, la, I think I'm a very good uh, gold digger. You know, I'll dig, 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 and then something, something will come out. So I think uh, I, I have to echo Dr. Subha's words. A lot of what she said makes sense. Um, but I think there is still a lot of bias, a lot of stigma. And unfortunately, I th- when I went through medical school 30 years ago, um, my professors said to me, look, you know, medical students, actually, you know, you dispense advice about sex, safe sex practices and all that. But actually, you guys are the most naive of the bunch. OK, so actually, uh, healthcare professionals, we are the goody two shoes, you know, and often we are not aware about what is going on around us. And for us to then tackle these issues, we feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to go down right back in terms of healthcare professionals. We need to dial right back. We need to start training our medical students, our student nurses, our counsellors, our teachers. We need to start training them to be able to talk freely and comfortably about sex. And that comes with sexual education being given freely and without stigma and without um, um, uh, judgment um, at the school level. And I agree, it starts with one years old where you don't call it a pee-pee, you will call it the proper name, right? So so it starts from, from young. And, and it I, starts at home. It starts at home. Okay, it's easier said than done because I felt uncomfortable talking to my children about mm. it. And I'm here, I am, I'm trained to do it. So it, it, it is something that you need to be conscious that let's talk about it. And once we start talking about it, we will create awareness. When you create awareness, you create political will and when you create political will things will happen Mm. Um, I also want to talk about other actors beyond the government, for example, um, you know, because this is women's sexual and reproductive health is beyond health and, and medical. Um, Sarita, the clip we heard from Sarita allude, um, touched on it a bit, for example, uh, medical leave, uh, menstrual leave from employers, right? Um, I'll start with you first, Dr. Who, you know, how can we em- incentivize employers or what would you like to see from employers to provide benefits or accommodations to female employees, especially on issues related to sexual and reproductive health, things that maybe the women themselves aren't even comfortable to bring up with HR or with their bosses? I think uh, menstrual leave is something, when I first heard about it, I I really had to take a step back and think, oh, what did I think about this? Because, you know, this this could potentially be the Pandora's box and it's a huge can of worms that you can Mm. open up. Then as I educated myself on how poorly menstrual pain is viewed and how much judgment these women go through, there is some method to the perceived madness of menstrual leave, right? So I think if it's implemented properly, I think you would actually have an employee that would perform that much better for you. Because they don't have to scramble around on the days that they feel like dying because of their menstrual pain to go and get an MC and then have the doctor there say, serious, uh, I also menstruating today, what? no pain, what? why, why, why? So they then they, you know, this is the stigma that they go through all the time. The other thing that I want to touch on briefly is about childcare. Mm. All right. So you're a mom. Now you have a baby. You have to go back to work. Uh-oh. What's going to happen? And you know, domestic workers now are not exactly very diff- easy to come by. And a crash at the workplace, it's hardly seen. Mm. So I think childcare is something that maybe it's not within the realms of sexual and reproductive health, but I think it certainly impacts on, on women who, who, you know, can contribute greatly to the workforce. 
Um, so this is something that perhaps the policymakers can think about as well, the provision mm. of childcare. Mm. Dr. Suba, from the gender budget group, you know, how do you think employers how do you think employers can also be roped in to, to better address um, women's sexual and reproductive health? Um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> women are just taught to suffer. And at the same time, women are just taught to be to be productive, um, both at home uh, in doing reproductive work and in the in the in the public sphere doing employment work. Um, so there's a lot of things that can be done. Definitely um, employer, employers up. Um, at the very least, you can um, provide allowances, such as uh, menstrual allowances, reproductive health leave. Um, you, you can be um, very understanding on chronic period pain that women do suffer from and um, the the challenges that they continue to face despite wanting to be productive members of society and wanting to come into the workforce. So I think building an enabling environment um, uh, in a workplace is very important. Uh, there can be many things that uh, employees employers can do, uh, but also I guess the government can put into place some tax incentives for those that um, uh, for employers that uh, choose to to support, um, including uh, maternity leave, paternity leave, mm-hmm. menstrual leave as mm-hmm. well, and and you know of course. Any change in society, if it goes against capitalism, is going to come um, against a lot of pushback. But, you know, this is the society we live in. If you improve the, the environment and make it enabling, and I, um, uh, Dr. Fu said maybe childcare is not part of SRH. It is. So um, childcare, intimate partner violence, all are a result of um, the unequal balance of work that women have at like certain genders have in like dealing with patriarchy. So it is, and sexual reproductive health is a manifestation on how, whether we can can live quality lives or not. Um, and it's good for everyone, you know, these policies are good for everyone, um, not only women, it also affects men, it also affects parents, um, um, husbands, um, um, even people in non-traditional relationships, if you give um, everybody the opportunity to improve their sexual and reproductive health, they will be happier, they will be, um, they will have more dignity and they will improve their productivity. So I think it's a win-win situation for everybody. Mm. All right, we'll go for another quick break and then we'll come back to sort of wrap up our conversation for today. On the show with me is Dr. Hu Mei Lin, consultant obstetrician and gynecologist as well as fertility specialist as, uh, and also Dr. Subhadra Jayaraj, primary care reproductive health specialist and president of Reproductive Rights Advocacy Alliance Malaysia. We'll be right back after a few messages to so keep it here on Health & Living, BFM 89.9. Stay tuned to BFM's Budget 2024 special. Brought to you by Marsing. This BFM Budget 2024 special is brought to you by Marsing. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su, and we are talking about Budget 2024 today, um, ahead of its tabling on the 14th of October, and we are taking a specific focus on women's sexual and reproductive health. Um, I've had a very fruitful and int- interesting discussion with my guest today, Dr. Hume Lin, consultant obstetrician and gynecologist and fertility specialist, as well as Dr. Subhadra Jayaraj, who is a primary care reproductive health specialist. She's also the president of the Reproductive Rights Advocacy Alliance 
Malaysia, which is um, part of the gender budget group um, aiming to promote gender responsive budgeting. Um, Dr. Hu, you wanted to add something else that you'd like to see from employers as well. Uh, so this is uh, what has been done overseas to encourage women to in- return to the workforce earlier. And so there is a concept of job share mm-hmm. where two women or two individuals share one position and one salary. So this gives you greater flexibility and enables you to stay at home with children more. The other one is flexible hours. So you have core hours that you work and you can either come in and go home late or you can come in late and go go home later. So, sorry, come in and go home early and then come late or go home late. So I think um, my sister who works in the UK uh, worked very successfully with these flexible hours. Mm. So she she made it so that she sent the kids to school, go to work, work through lunch, and then she was in time to pick them up from school because their school finishes at three. Mm. So I think if we could implement these sort of things um, and, and, and employers can embrace these sort of uh, policies, then I think more women will be happier to work in the workplace. Mm, definitely. Um, Dr. Suba, I want to ask you though, are we missing out on a very specific cohort, which are university students or, or perhaps students in, in schools, right? Can can something, would you also like to see something being done so that schools and universities are more aware and conscious of the accommodations needed to be given to young teenagers? Yeah, for adolescent young people, um uh, in their reproductive health, they're frequently left out mm. uh, because number one, we just don't think anybody is having sex. When our demographic health data from the National Morbidity and Mortality Health Survey last year showed that mm. lots of teenagers are already having sex, uh, even though you're less than 14, 15. Um, so if we are not providing access to services and information to this group, um, we are actually just marginalizing eat them even more. And they are going to either just ignore their health and come late. Um, so they will come and see Dr. Fu or me at very advanced pregnancies. Mm. That's if they um, know that they're pregnant. Or number two, they don't know how to protect themselves. We don't have enough information on good quality information. So lots of them are now learning on, you know, everybody learns on TikTok nowadays. And um, I questioned as well. Of course, there are some good awareness providers outside out, out there. Um, but there are a lot of, um, COVID has shown there's a lot of, um, you know. Misinformation. Yes, misinformation. So, you know, we need, um, we need like a whole program uh, and we need to push it. We need to remove barriers. We need to make sure services in the Ministry of Health is non-discriminative and non-judgmental towards yeah, adolescent and young people, um, especially uh, with regards to sexual and reproductive health. And we need to put out that information in language that is accessible to them. Um, and this by language that is accessible, I don't only mean by English, Malay, Chinese, Tamil, you know, Mandarin, Tamil, sorry. Um, it is also a language that needs to be spoken so that young people understand. And I know a lot of comprehensive sexuality education um, activists Mm -hmm. who are trained in this area of work and they just need to be given the support. And, you know, as again, as I said, a lot of us do this work for free Mm -hmm. and this ad hoc thing is just not working. The government needs to budget into programs that are well-structured and that can reach everybody. And and then this would include um, those in school, primary school, high school, and also university and include services, you know, not just information. They need Um, to know where to go, right? need to know where to go and make sure that 
it is a non-judgmental service. Mm, mm. We keep coming back to that being <laughs> non-judgmental. I think that's the crux here. Um, Dr. Suba, if we continue to neglect funding of sexual and reproductive health services, right? How do you see this impacting the development of our country down the line? I think it's going to impact a lot of people because sexual and reproductive health affects everyone. Um, as as we discussed today, it's from from childhood um, up until um, the reproductive ages, up until menopause, and further on. And um, if we don't take care of our people, you know, you're going to have a population uh, that is unhealthy, unhappy, and if you want to talk about costs, unproductive. Uh, so women's health always will come, has come in the lowest rung, especially when people are fighting for resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID has shown that, like, um, you know, uh, healthcare has come across money challenges and the resources um, are shrinking. Uh, everybody is looking for a piece of the pie, uh, but we need to emphasize that sexual and reproductive health uh, 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 affect everybody and it's health, right? You don't have to wait until somebody is sick or has a problem because it is an investment in health and it's an investment in the community and all, all Malaysians. So if I were to look for the like the best cost effective things, I would um I would I would tailor the budget, for example, to things that have been proven to work. And in medicine, we speak a lot about evidence-based medicine. Mm -hmm. For example, for in the Southeast Asian context, one ringgit um, spent on contraception saves four ringgit in healthcare costs in the, in, in the future. Um, we've talked about cervical screening. It's going to save on cervical cancer. Uh, we can actually, in our lifetime, uh, eliminate cervical cancer 15 years down um, in the cohort that Dr. Hu was speaking about. And if we, we put the budget towards high quality uh, programs that have been shown to work, that is the most effective. And I hope that's what's going to be done. Mm. Dr. Hu, what are you most worried about if we don't see enough funding? I think I think I echo what Dr. Suba says. So if you don't see enough funding in this area, I think a lot of things are going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things that we always talk about is moving Malaysia from being a developing to a developed country. And that's going to fail. So a lot of things that uh, Dr. Suba has talked about, preventative medicine, I think to prevent is better to cure. Mm -hmm. So a very acute example is that if you don't educate a young girl and she happens to have sex early, then she contracts a sexually transmitted disease. And then she's infertile. Then she has to access the fertility services and maybe end up having IVF. So if you had just given a pill or a condom that maybe costs, what, one ringgit? Right versus spending on IVF thirty thousand ringgit a cycle, I mean you can see the cost disparity mm-hmm. right there. And then we haven't talked about unwanted pregnancies, baby dumping, you know, uh, unwanted sequelae from an unsafe abortion. So I think they have to maybe think about prevention, not just about tackling the disease when it happens, but prevention. Mm. So I think that's what mostly I would like to see and, and something that reflects on how to help our rugged, how to help a woman go be the best of herself, how to help a family achieve what they want. I think that's what I want to see. All right. Thank you both so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure as always.
Thanks, Suen, and uh, thanks, Dr. Wu. I've been speaking to Dr. Humeilin, consultant obstetrician and gynecologist and fertility specialist, and Dr. Subhatra Jayaraj, primary care reproductive health specialist and president of the Reproductive Rights Advocacy Alliance Malaysia on what they'd like to see on Budget 2024 for women's sexual and reproductive health. I'm Lim Suen, and this has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. This BFM Budget 2024 special was brought to you by Marsing. Reinvent spaces, enhance life. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.